0: good morning again. Uh, It's good to see you all in the Lord's house today. I ask you to turn to John chapter 17, the Gospel of John chapter 17. I'd like to say a word of thanks to the session for this opportunity to bring the Word of God before you. I assure you I count it a privilege and an honor to bring it to you this morning. I trust we'll know the Lord's message. To coming coming home to all of our hearts this morning. John chapter seventeen we'll begin reading in verse one. These words spake Jesus, and lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy son. That thy Son may also, thy Son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I have glorified Thee on the earth. I have finished the work which Thou gavest me to do. Amen. Let us come before the Lord one last time and ask for His help. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we bow our heads in Thy presence. We bow our hearts importantly. Lord, we come to this wonderful passage of Scripture that is so beyond us in so many ways. Lord, we need Thy help that we would understand something of its reality coming home to our hearts today. Lord, I pray that You will help me to preach Thy truth Oh, Lord, that you'll help me to preach it in the power of the Holy Spirit, not in the arm of the flesh. Pray, O oh God, that you'll give, give help, grant help to each child of God today to hear thy message. Oh, Lord, grant us, grant us the ability to know something of the greatness of the love of Christ. Lord, help us now, we pray. Fill us all with thy Holy Spirit. Set a watch over my mouth, O Lord, and keep the door of my lips that nothing apart from the message of God would be uttered, and that I would keep nothing back from the message of God to be uttered. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The verse I draw your attention to this morning is verse 3. That will be our focus. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. In this verse, Jesus Christ, as he is praying to the Father, defines and describes eternal life. This verse is a definition and description of eternal life. This is our Lord's high priestly prayer. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Some have called this the greatest prayer ever prayed after the greatest sermon ever preached. We see in verse 3 that it's coming very connected off of verse 2. And that's why I say that this is a definition and a description of eternal life. Men have debated those things and debated whether or not this is actually a a definition of eternal life or whether it is just a description. I say that it is both. And I I base that primarily on verse 2. Verse 2 says, As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And the obvious question that comes from reading verse 2 is what is that eternal life that Christ gives, that he imparts to his people? And so the very grammar of verse 2 naturally leads to a definition in verse 3 This is life eternal. But we know from elsewhere in the Bible that eternal life is not only the imparting of knowledge, but it is also the imparting of spiritual life that makes knowledge come alive to the sinner. And Christ gives both. He gives the knowledge and He gives the experience of the knowledge. He imparts the life that enables the sinner to experience the truth. And so he says in John 3, 7, ye must be born again. So this is both a definition and a description of eternal life. And I want to just break the text down very simply in two ways. You have the subject identified, firstly, the subject identified. And this is life eternal and here you can see the, the seriousness, the importance of the subject. It is life. That what Jesus is talking about here is the very essence of what life, true spiritual life is. And so, every ear and every eye should be attentive to what he says. This word for life eternal or eternal life is used all throughout John's Gospel. And John even tells us that it is the purpose of his Gospel that whoever would read would believe on Christ that they would have eternal life. And here Jesus is rehearsing what eternal life ultimately is before the Father. So that's the subject identified. Then you have the subject defined and described. And he defines it in this way. This is life eternal, that they might know thee. That they might know thee. It is defined as knowing God and knowing Christ. And it's not just a head knowledge that is given here. The word there for know has the idea of experiencing a knowledge that is personal, intimate, experienced. That's how he defines eternal life. As a spiritual experiencing of the truth regarding God and regarding Christ. And so that is, then leads to the description. It's defined as knowing and it's defined, described as knowing. He describes it that it's not only this spiritual experience, but it is spiritual experience regarding the truth of God in Christ. And I bring your attention here this morning because I want you to see and dwell upon the reality that the most precious gift that God has given to His people, the most precious gift that God has given to His people is the knowledge of Himself in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. But sadly, many of us are prone to forget that. Many of us, many Christians are prone to think that their satisfaction is to be found somewhere else in the world. We are prone to thinking that the majority of our time is better spent doing something other than growing in intimacy with Jesus Christ we are often deceived into thinking that our satisfaction is meant to be found in our friends, our family, our job, our possessions, or ourselves. And what we fail to realize, what many of us fail to realize, is that the only true and lasting satisfaction there is, is that which is to be found in God himself. The chief thing that we are to be pursuing in our lives is a greater intimacy with and knowledge of our Lord. Our Lord who shed His blood so that you and I could have this intimacy with Him. Jeremiah, the prophet, in chapter 9 of his prophecy, verse 23 through 24 says, Thus saith the Lord... For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. Let him glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me. It is in the light of this that I want to speak to you today about the essence of eternal life. The essence of eternal life. Because that is what we find in this text. And this is life eternal. Eternal that they might know Thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom Thou hast sent." And the doctrine that we gain from this verse is that knowing God through Jesus Christ is the essence of eternal life. Knowing God through Jesus Christ is the essence of eternal life. And I want you to notice several things about this knowledge from this passage. The first is that it is possible to know God think about that it is possible to know God Jesus Christ says and this is life eternal that they might know thee that they might know Thee. God could have left fallen humanity to themselves he could have left us blind and darkened by our sin and ignorant of his grace And yet God has been pleased to reveal Himself to fallen humanity. He's been pleased to give us revelation of His gospel and of His grace. So it is possible to know God. And the question then comes, well, how is it possible to know God? It's possible because He's revealed Himself, but where has He revealed Himself? There are three things to consider here. First, that God has revealed Himself in His world. God has revealed Himself in His world. If you'll turn to Psalm 19, Psalm 19, very easily see this truth expressed here in Psalm 19. God has revealed Himself in His world. In Psalm 19 we read in verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament showeth His handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line is gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. The heavens declare, reveal the glory of God. The firmament shows His handiwork. So there is revelation of God coming through His creation. God has revealed Himself in His world. And yet men, apart from spiritual life, are utterly blind to this revelation. Utterly darkened. And cannot behold the glory of God that is revealed from the heavens. In the sense that the believer can. Not only has God revealed Himself in His world, God has revealed himself in his word. That is also shown to us here in this psalm. God has revealed himself in his word. We see in verse 7, it it changes from this general revelation in creation to this specific, this special revelation in the word. It says, verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. So God has revealed Himself in His world, but He's also revealed Himself in His Word. And that this is all forming the basis of this knowledge of God. This basis, this, this truth that is to be experienced by the child of God because men in their fallen condition can not experience this it is only when God comes and gives life to the sinner that they experience this but not only has God revealed himself in his world in his word but God has revealed himself by his son by his son this is how it is possible to know God He's revealed himself by his son and there are many texts in the Bible that show this, but I want to focus on a couple chief ones. Even the very text we read, John 17, 3, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. God has sent His Son to reveal Himself to fallen men. You see that God has revealed Himself by His Son in the Old Testament. For Christ says in John 5, 39, He says, search the Scriptures that is the Old Testament scripture. Search the Scriptures. For in them ye think ye have eternal life. And they are they which testify of me. But ye will not come unto me that ye might have life. Christ here drawing the focus of the fact that the whole Old Testament is His testimony. Testifying to Him. And so when we read of God appearing to men in the Old Testament, we understand that it is Christ appearing to them. For Christ, rather John, writes in John 1.18, No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared or revealed Him. So it is God's revelation by His Son in the Old Testament. But it is also especially in the New Testament. John 17.3, Whom thou hast sent. And this truth is is further brought out in Hebrews 1 verses 1 through 2. He says, God who at sundry times and in diverse manners or at different times and in different ways spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son. By His Son God has spoken. God has been pleased to reveal Himself to us by His Son referring to this light of the New Testament. We actually have the words of the incarnate Christ given to us. How does God give this knowledge? How does He reveal Himself to man? It's possible to know Him. How does He do it? 2 Corinthians 4, 6 God who commanded the light of to shine out of the darkness of our hearts. To give the light of the knowledge and the word for knowledge there is the same word we have for know in verse 3 of John 17. To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's how God gives us this knowledge. So it is possible to know God. That's the first thing we have to understand when we come to this text. But not only is it possible to know God, this knowledge is essential. This knowledge is essential. He says in John seventeen three, This is life eternal. This is life. Which means that without this... Man is spiritually dead. Without it, man is spiritually dead. Because this is life. Without this, a man does not have life. We are told that before God quickens us with this life, we are all dead spiritually in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.1. So without it, man is spiritually dead. John has already said in John chapter 3, our Lord Jesus speaking there. He says in verse 14 of John 3, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Why? Verse 15, That whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Without this life, without this knowledge, man will perish. So without it, man is spiritually dead. But the glorious thing here is that with it, man is spiritually alive. Man is made alive by God with this eternal life. And this is life eternal. Because we also learn in Ephesians 2.1, And you hath He quickened, or made alive, And that is made alive to experience the truth of God's revelation in Christ. It is spiritual life imparted to man. And so it is essential for someone to be saved. This is what salvation consists in. Eternal life. But this knowledge is not only essential. This knowledge is given. This knowledge is given. Is given. Because he says, This is life eternal, that they might know thee. And that they, in verse 3, are the many as thou hast given him, in verse 2. He says, In verse 2, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. This knowledge is given. It is given by Jesus Christ, first of all. It is given by Jesus Christ that He should give eternal life. We read in 1 John 5.20 something of a description of of what exactly happens when Christ gives this knowledge. We read in 1 John 5.20, And we know that the Son of God is come and hath given us an understanding that we may know Him that is true. Same word in John 17, 3, that we may know Him that is true, and we are in Him that is true, even in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. It is knowledge that is given by Christ. It is also knowledge. Knowledge that is given to His people. This knowledge is given. It is given by Jesus Christ, and it is given to His people. We see that clearly in this text, that they, as many as thou hast given Him, that they might know thee. And that's a sobering thing for us to consider. As you sit here today, saved in Christ, To realize the reality that not all are given this gift, but it is given to those whom Christ is pleased to give it to, those whom God has given to Christ. It is given to His people. How is it given? It is given through the Holy Spirit. How does Christ give this knowledge? He gives it and He gives it to His people, and He gives it to His people through the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 10, we read, But as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love Him. But God hath revealed them unto us by His Spirit. Because verse 14 says, The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. So Christ gives this knowledge to His people through the Holy Spirit. He breathes life into us and enables us to experience the truth. Well, when does He do this? He gives it to His people He gives it through the Holy Spirit and He gives it at regeneration. He gives it when someone is born again. And so we can clearly see the necessity of being born again and why Christ says ye must be born again. Because when eternal life is imparted to the soul and a sinner is made to live, it is only at that point that a sinner possesses eternal life and is enabled to know, as this text refers to, is able to know God in Christ. That brings me to the next thing about this knowledge. This knowledge is experiential. This knowledge is experiential. That simply means that it is to be experienced. It is not a mere knowledge of facts about God and about Christ. It is a knowledge to be experienced. And it is a knowledge that must be experienced. Because that word know in John seventeen three has all this contained in it. So that's the first thing. It is experienced. This knowledge is experiential. It must be experienced. The word here refers to personal, intimate acquaintance with something. It is a deep knowledge. It's a felt knowledge. Not just head knowledge, but heart knowledge. An illustration of this is Genesis 4.1. We read there that Adam knew Eve, his wife. And the knowing there speaks of that intimate relationship that, Christ, that, that Adam rather had with his wife by which they had a son. That's the kind of, of intimacy that's referred to here, the deepness of the relationship that a believer is to have with God and Christ, that a believer is given with God through Christ. If you turn to John 8, I'd like to illustrate this for you. There, the the importance of this word. How vital it is to understand what Christ is referring to when he says to know. John 8 and verse 31, we'll begin reading. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. And then in verse 32, And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And the word for know there is the same word in John 17, 3. And so Jesus says here, Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. That shows us the importance of what this word really has in store. That it is knowledge of this truth that shall make us free. Ye shall know or ye shall experience, we might say. Ye shall experience the truths of the gospel. Ye shall experience the truth of God's salvation in Christ. That's what he's talking about here in verse 32. And by that experience of this truth, by it coming home to the heart of man, by that you are made free, made free from your bondage to sin, made free to live in Christ. Ye shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Each one of us that are saved, that are born again in this room, have been given that experience of the truth that sets the soul free. Praise God. Hallelujah. If your soul's been set free today, if the knowledge of the truth of God has come home to your heart, praise His name today. Not only is it must it be experienced. But this experience is manifested in conversion. This experience is manifested in conversion. How does someone know when this experience comes? Well, it comes by the will of God. It comes in conversion. And I say it is manifested in conversion because conversion is the manifestation of being born again. It's how you know someone's regenerated. They come to Christ. That is conversion. A person cannot but be converted. They cannot keep themselves from coming to Christ once they have been born again. Because they have been enlightened, illuminated to the truth of the gospel, and they cannot turn away from it because God has convinced them of it. That is the reality of this experience, that it manifests itself in conversion. Because when a sinner is illuminated to the truth about God and Christ and the the gloriousness of the gospel, they can't stay away. Could you stay away when you saw the beauty of Christ, when you beheld His glory? Could you stay away? You could not even if you were saved as a child and born again then, there was something that changed in your mind, something that changed in your heart so that you would not turn away from the gospel of Christ. It is manifested in conversion. And we see that illustrated so clearly in the life of the Apostle Paul. Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a man who was deeply religious. And yet in Acts 9, we're given this account of how God told His servant Ananias to go and get Paul and and bring him to the disciples at Jerusalem. Why? God tells Ananias, For behold, he prayeth. Behold, he prayeth. Paul had prayed before. Paul had lived a life as a Pharisee that was surrounded by knowledge and prayer and all manner of religious service. But it was when he was met by God. It was when he experienced the new birth. It was when he was given eternal life that prayer became something more. That he experienced what it was to truly pray. Behold, he prayeth. So it is manifested in conversion. This experience also continues throughout life. It continues throughout life. Because Christ says in John 17, 3, that this is life eternal. It continues throughout the life. First, it continues objectively. And what I mean by that is that when a person is born again they will continue in this experience. They will continue in this knowledge. Initially they continue because God commands the light to shine out of darkness and it stays shining. A sinner can't reverse God's command for the light to shine. And so it continues objectively in that way. And it continues in a manifestation of, of a changed life, to some degree, greater or lesser, and so we read in First John. If you'll turn there, First John, chapter two. First John, chapter two. The apostle writing there says in verse three. And hereby we do know that we know him. Hereby we do know that we know Him, if we keep His commandments. He that saith, I know Him, and keepeth not His commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth His word, in Him barely is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in Him. It is by this that we know. Now, we know that it is not a perfect keeping of the commandments that's referred to. We know that our assurance of salvation is not based on our obedience. Because God says through the Apostle John in verse 1, My little children, these things write unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ the righteous. There's the acknowledgement that believers still sin. And yet the way we know that we know Him is through this keeping of His commandments. This measure of obedience in the life. And an illustration of this I heard from a man one time that I think captures it rightly. That this obedience, this walking as He walked, that is Christ that's referred to. Walking as Christ walked is for a believer Like a young boy trying to walk in the shoes of his father. That he can't fill those shoes. He can't walk perfectly in those shoes. But he's trying to walk in those shoes. That's the point. So it continues throughout this life objectively in that way but it also continues subjectively that is that each believer has a certain subjective experience of this eternal life that goes on throughout the life how do we know that how do we reason that well Christ said in John 10 John chapter 10 in verse 10 he says there The thief cometh not, but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life, that they might have it more abundantly. More abundantly. What does that mean? That that Christ would come, that they would have life more abundantly. And it doesn't just have to do with an objective experience of eternal life, but it has to do with the subjective. And you can see this as as the Apostle John writes in 1 John 1, 4, These things write we unto you that your joy may be full. That your joy may be full. The implication, therefore, is that their joy wasn't full. He writes this letter in 1 John so that their joy would be full. And that captures something of what Christ is referring to here in the fact that the believer is to have life more abundantly. That it has to do with a subjective experience of the joy of the believer. What is an illustration of this? Well, Paul illustrates it for us in Ephesians chapter 3, if you'll turn there. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul illustrates this for us in a prayer. He prays this prayer for the Ephesians. They are believers. Keep that in mind as we read this. He says in verse 14, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For this cause, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with might by His Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know, same word, and to know the love of God of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God." Paul prayed this prayer for believers, that they would come to a greater felt experience of the love of Christ, to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge. Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what Thou art. I am finding out the greatness of Thy loving heart. Does that not melt your soul? Does that not take your heart to heaven? That you have the privilege of finding out the greatness of his love and that you can more and more so it continues subjectively in that way this experience will continue into the next life not only this life but the next life because christ says it is eternal life is life eternal And the only way that we can begin to understand all the ramifications of that is that in glory, you will have a perfectly sanctified knowledge of God. But you will always be growing in your experience of God. That as we go to glory, our knowledge will be sanctified, but it will grow your experience will grow. You will experience more of the love of God, more of the love of Christ, more of the realities of the gospel for eternity. And even if you believe that 1 Corinthians 13, 12 is referring to our glorified knowledge of God, that verse, I'm not going to turn it up, but says something that some people take as as an ending of Increase of knowledge. That's not what it refers to. Because we know from the very nature of who God is, that it is impossible for you or I or any other creature to know God to an infinite degree like He knows us. We can't know Him infinitely. He's beyond that. He is infinite. So our knowledge of Him can never be complete in an infinite sense. But it can. And I believe will be satisfactory in glory. We will be satisfied in glory. But we will grow in our experience of Him. And I must admit that I cannot begin to fathom or explain that. But it will be glorious. Think of this, that every believer, that you, if you are in Christ, will for eternity be growing in your intimacy with God and with Christ. Growing in that experience. So this knowledge is experiential. this knowledge is of God. This knowledge is of God. It is of the only true God. This is life eternal that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. And this is really a warning to the Gentiles. This statement here. For us to be warned that there is only one true God. And so the emphasis there is on that fact that there is only one true God. How do we know that? God has revealed Himself as such in Jeremiah 10.10. He says He is the living God. Not dead as the other gods that Jesus Christ was encountering among the Gentiles in His ministry. Their gods were dead, but this God is the living God. Jeremiah 10.10 But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and an everlasting King. At His wrath the earth shall tremble and the nations shall not be able to abide His indignation. He is the living God. He's the revealed God. He's the only God that has truly revealed Himself to man. I won't take the time to turn there, but in Isaiah 45, 20 through 22, God gives us something of the vanity of idols. He tells us that they are dumb and lame. They cannot save. That He is the only Savior. And that He's declared this from ancient time. The implication of the text there is that there are many false gods. There are many idols that men make. But this is knowledge of the only true God. And so John tells us in 1 John 5:21, "Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from idols. Don't allow yourself to be deceived into believing in an idol." And what are the gods of our day? The gods of their day were the Roman gods, the Greek gods. All the various gods of different religions, and there's still gods of different religions today. But what is the chief idol, false god of our day? It is the god of self. It is the god of self. It is the fact that people will say, I determine truth. And it is a dangerous, hazardous, deceitful lie of the devil that leads people to hell. People worship themselves in our day seemingly more than any other. Calvin said the heart is a factory of idols. Constantly trying to produce an idol. Keep yourselves from idols. That's the implication there. This knowledge is of God. This knowledge is also of Christ. This knowledge is of Jesus Christ. For he says, this is life eternal that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. This is a warning to the Jews. It's not only knowledge of the only true God, it is knowledge of the only true God as he is revealed in Jesus Christ, whom God has sent. So what is this knowledge of Christ in regard to? Well, it is knowledge of his name. This is the only time that I could find recorded that Jesus Christ refers to himself in this way. That he says, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. So it is knowledge of his name that is being drawn, our attention is being drawn to here. We have the name Jesus Christ. Jesus. Drawing our attention to the incarnation of the Son of God. Matthew 1.21, And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. For he shall save his people from their sins. Jesus. But also Christ. Christ, Jesus Christ. Referring to the anointed of God that as we read in Hebrews 2 9 referring to Christ thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity therefore God even thy God hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows above thy fellows Jesus Christ the Savior of sinners the chosen of God because he is the righteous servant knowledge of his name is also knowledge Of his person, knowledge of his person, knowledge that he is the God man, because that is also brought out in this text. No that he that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Jesus Christ equating himself with God. That it is not just God that must be known, but it is Jesus Christ who must be known. Drawing again our attention to the fact that God has come to dwell among us. That the Son of God came into this world. That God was manifest in the flesh. First Timothy 3.16 That is knowledge of His person. It is also knowledge of His work. Knowledge of His work. Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Why did God send Him? Sent Him to procure eternal life for His people. What is a a summary of His work that I could bring before you today? Galatians 3.10 For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. Referring to every human being born in this world. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. And so we were cursed under the law, convicted by our disobedience. And yet what does Galatians 13 say of the work of Christ? Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. Being made a curse for us. That's His work. In In a summary sense, Christ was made a curse that you and I, that every believer could have eternal life in Him. What are you to do in light of this passage today? What are we to take away from all of this? I submit to you the first application of this is a question. It's the most important question you will ever ask yourself. Is do you have this knowledge? Do you know God? Do you have eternal life? You must ask yourself that question not asking you if you're a perfect person. I'm asking you, do you have this experience? Have you felt the truths of the gospel? Because this is not, again, this is not a head knowledge, it is a heart knowledge. I'm asking you not if you know the facts of the gospel, but ask yourself, I'm asking you, do you feel the truths of the gospel? Now, none of us feels them enough, but do you feel Matthew one twenty one. When you read that thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins, do you feel that? Do you feel that God was manifest in the flesh? Do you feel something of the glory that the Son of God would come into this fallen world Leave glory for my soul. Do you feel, Galatians 3.13, Christ made a curse for us? None of us feel these enough. But I'm just asking you, do you feel something? If you feel something, that's an indication that you have eternal life. You can feel that Christ was made a curse for you. So it is a question. And then we are to remember and rejoice in the preciousness of this knowledge today. To remember and rejoice. Because the reality is that this is not given to all. That it is a God-given experience of revealed truth. It is the life of God imparted to the soul of man. That you've been given an experience of this knowledge that not everyone is given. And so Christ says to His disciples in Matthew 13, He says there to them, in verse 11, He answered and said unto them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. Verse 13, Therefore speak I to them in parables, because they seeing see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. Verse 16, But blessed, oh, blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear you can remember and rejoice that Christ has opened your eyes and opened your ears to see Him in His beauty, in His glory. You're to daily live in the reality of this knowledge. And and, and we, we need this so much. I know I do. We need to live in the reality of this knowledge. Meaning to daily walk in light of this knowledge. Because this is knowledge that by God's grace will carry you through life. The fact that you walk through life knowing God and knowing Christ. It is knowledge that brings comfort and peace and perseverance and true and lasting joy to the soul. It's the only knowledge that can do that. These things write we unto you that your joy may be full. Jesus came not only to save us from our sins, but because He is so merciful, because He is so gracious, He came to that we might have life abundantly in Him. And lastly, we are to cultivate our experience of this knowledge. To cultivate it. That subjective aspect of it. We are to cultivate what we have been given in this knowledge of God and of Christ. And we are told to do this Romans 12 2, Paul says, be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed. Transformed by what? By the renewing of your mind. The renewing of your mind. In Ephesians 5 16, Paul tells us, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. And I suggest to you this has in mind this cultivation of the experience of God's truth. How is that to be done? How are you to cultivate that experience? How are you to cultivate the life that has been given to you? Firstly, through meditation on the Word preached. Meditation on the Word preached. Through the preaching of the Word of God. Not just a a, a casual hearing of it. Not just hearing and then forgetting all about what you've heard, but a meditation on the word preached, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Meditation on the word preached transforms the soul, but also meditation on the word read. Meditation on the word read, that transforms the soul. That's how you cultivate this life, this experience of the knowledge of God and of Christ. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2, 1, As newborn babe, desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby. If so be ye have tasted, experienced, tasted, that the Lord is gracious. He tells us again in 2 Peter 3:18, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Grow meditation on the word, not just not just the amount of the word read, but the meditation on the word. But not only through these, but through prayer. Through prayer We cultivate this experience. And it's by specifically seeking God in prayer for more intimate manifestations of His presence and more powerful impressions of His truth. Think of Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3. That's his prayer. That ye may know the love of Christ. That ye might increase in your experience of the love of Christ. What are examples of this? Is that just some high and lofty ideal that no one can ever attain to? It's not. We just know very little of it in our day. You have the Psalms. And the Psalms are the inspired Word of God, and men wrote them under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But when you read the Psalms, you see that those writing them felt what they were writing. You enter in to their experience to some degree when you read the Psalms thoughtfully. And the Holy Spirit used their meditation and used their cultivation of their experience of God's truth in His inspiration of the Psalms. And so when you read the writings of men who knew God, men who knew deep intimacy with God. You see in their writings, you feel when you read them that these men knew something that I want to know. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in preaching on this text, in preaching about this same thing, referred to three men not found in the scripture, but men of God in church history that knew something of this. He referred to John Flavel or Flavel, Jonathan Edwards, and D.L. Moody. And he records from these men's writings that each of these men had an experience where they were overcome and overwhelmed with the presence of God. It was something unusual that these men experienced. These men account that they suddenly became unusually aware of the awesome presence of God. That they became so conscious of it that they could feel it. And they, at least a couple of them, I believe it was John Flavel that that just dropped. And D.L. Moody, I believe it was too, he actually prayed for God to, to withhold it to hold it back because he was so impressed with the presence of God. Jonathan Edwards records in his writings how he would become overwhelmed with the reality of certain texts as he would meditate on them, as he would consider and and, and dive into the truth of the Word of God, that these truths would melt his heart. And lead him to deep places of communion with God. Ask yourself, what do I know of that? What do I know of that? What am I pursuing with the majority of my life? I think most of us would admit that we know far too little of what these men are referring to. But the glorious thing, let each of us leave this place today knowing and rejoicing that we can experience more of God and more of Christ in this life. That it is not a lost cause for any of us, but we can know more of this. Let us prepare ourselves for eternity and pursue the knowledge of God through Jesus Christ. Let us, only, let us not only live knowing that we know God, but let us daily experience the reality of knowing God. I close with the words of Peter in 2 Peter 1, verse 2 through 3. He says to the believers there, Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. According as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue. Jesus, I am resting. Resting in the joy of what Thou art. I am finding out the greatness of thy loving heart. Leave here today finding out more of Christ. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we come before you in Jesus' name and thank thee for what thou hast said to us From thy word. Oh Lord, we commit ourselves to Thee. We submit ourselves to You, Lord, and we just ask, Lord, that You would give us more of the experience of the love of Christ. Let us find out the greatness of His love, Lord. Pour out the the Holy Spirit into our souls today. Fill us with Him that we'd be enabled to understand more of You. Oh Lord, let not one leave here today that does not have this knowledge. Save souls, we pray. Change us, Lord, more into the image of Christ. Hear us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.